Let me invite you to uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you should find a Bible in front of you in the pew. 2 Samuel chapter 22, we've been studying the life of David for uh, several months now, and we will wrap this series up next Sunday. After that, we'll begin a new series in the Gospel of John. But today, I want to invite you, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 22, I want to invite you to really engage in this text in a way that is not just looking at the information of the text, but really looking at the emotion uh, behind the text. And that, I know that can be difficult to do. Sometimes it's just easier to hear good information and to not really engage with our hearts. Uh, we, we try to do this around our dinner table sometimes. We'll ask our kids, like, what's something that was uh, your favorite thing today and something that was your least favorite thing? So we, get, we call it your high, your low, and what you're grateful for. And, uh, you know, when we get to that, what you're grateful for, we're trying to kind of get to a little bit of, of emotion there. And we've got boys. We've got four boys in our home right now. And so, you know, we get about as deep as I'm grateful for the mac and cheese. Okay? So all I'm saying is I'm asking for a little more than that this morning. Okay? And it's something that I, I can't give you, that the Holy Spirit has to give you. As you hear this psalm that David is writing... And uh, in it, David is remembering God's faithfulness to him. I mean, he's so thankful for God's faithfulness at the end of his life that he writes a song about it. Let me just ask a question this morning. Do you trust God right now with the stuff that you're facing? Like the stuff that you're facing today and this week. Do you really trust God with it? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could look at God in the midst of our trials and remember who He is and what He's done and what He's continuing to do? Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And that's the key. That's who David is going to point us toward this morning. Even so many years before Jesus would, would come in the flesh, David's going to point us to Jesus. Oftentimes, I think that we treat God as if we can trust Him with our eternity, but we're really uncertain if we can trust Him with the ordinary stuff of our everyday lives. That's why we oftentimes and rarely bring those things to Him. We know that we can trust Him with eternity because if we're claiming to be followers of Jesus, then hey, what other choice do we have, quite frankly? Right? But what would it look like if, if like David, we, we looked back over our lives and we came to see that, that we could trust Jesus even in the everyday stuff of life? That's what David is expressing in this psalm joyfully. He is praising God. And David teaches us that God can be trusted. Not only with eternity, but even with our lives right now. That God is with us. And that he is for us because of Jesus. And that sounds, that sounds like just bottom line kindergarten simple. And some of you who are uh, kind of in your sarcastic uh, moments say, well, duh, listen to me. You don't believe it. You don't believe that statement. God is with you and for you because of Jesus. Because if you believed it, 
you would live like it in the everyday stuff of life. None of us do. Not even David did. But he reminds us of the truth that God is for us. And if the Holy Spirit really planted that amazing truth deep within our hearts, I just wonder how radically our lives would be changed today. I wonder how radically my life would be changed today if I really came to believe that. Let's look at the context of this. And let's see the encouragement that David gives to us to believe that God is with us and that God is for us because of Jesus. Look in verse 1. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now what threw me off when I first started studying this verse is uh, I, I was thinking, like, what day? Like, we've been studying David's whole life, and what day is he talking about? And I really think David is talking more about in the season, or, or in, in the time in which he looked back and saw, not only has God delivered me from Saul, but he has delivered me from all my enemies. And so he is in this, in this moment in his life in which he is looking back on life. This psalm is also, uh, or this song, rather, is also, you will see it, um, almost exactly in Psalm 18. Many people think that this was like David's version. This was his personal version. And then maybe they polished it up a little for, you know, for, to be published in, in, in the Israeli hymnal back in the day. You know? But like Psalm 18, we, we got to work on it a little bit. But this was David's personal copy. And, and in it we see something that's really interesting. Because David, is at the, he's in the last quarter. Actually, he's in the last moments of the last quarter of his life. Life's really interesting, like the way that time goes by. When you're really young, uh, time can't move fast enough, right? I mean, you sit in class and you watch that second hand uh, on the big clocks. Do they still have those in classes? Yeah. And they, like, seem to not move or to move in reverse. Like, time cannot move fast enough. But when you're like me, and I'm in the second half of my life, and so I'm, I'm 43, so I've got less time to go than I've probably lived, most likely. Time starts moving by a lot faster. But something happens that's really unique as you move into the last quarter of your life. You begin to wonder, how much time do I have left? And you begin to reflect on your life. And that's what David is doing. He is reflecting on his life, and he's thinking Think of all the experiences David had. I mean, a life, uh, think of all the stories and dramas that we've read of David the shepherd boy. I mean, his life was exciting even then as a shepherd. He said, I, I've, I defended the sheep against a lion and against a bear. And, the, and not just as a shepherd boy, but then out of nowhere, Samuel shows up, anoints him as king. And, and David goes off, he kills Goliath. He's made to be a general. He's a musician before Saul in his court. I mean, all the experiences that David has had running from Saul, joining the Philistines, God saving him over and over again, being, a, being finally appointed king, but then a civil war rages in the country for seven years before David is finally king over all of Israel, and then rebellion from his son Absalom and from others. I mean, his life is filled with drama after drama after drama. And his life isn't that much different than some of ours, in a sense. I mean, our lives are filled with drama. Our lives are filled with, with scene after scene after scene. Think about it. I mean, the average American will have 12 to 15 jobs. 
in their life. Seven career or major changes within their job life is what statistics tell us. That's kind of crazy. Uh, the average American will live in, they'll move 12 times. Like, we have a lot of experiences just in our jobs and in our personal lives. That hasn't even touched our families or our kids or our own health. Think about all the circumstances that we face. And where is God in the midst of those? David is reflecting on his life written in the day or the time or the season when the Lord has delivered him from all his enemies. And he's looking back. And think about this. Here's what's so incredible to me. David's not looking back. And I'm, I'm spending a lot of time to set this up because this psalm is an incredible psalm. And, and you will not understand the passion in which David's writing if you don't understand. See, David's not like Michael Jordan. David's not going, man, what a career I had. But it's all over. No. David is saying, oh, what a career I had. But oh, what a God who led me and rescued me in that career. And oh, what a joy I have as I anticipate knowing Him and being with Him. Like the best is yet to come. That's what he's going to say as he unfolds this song, this poem for us. Look at verse 2. We're going to see a faithful God that David is remembering throughout all of his life. A faithful God. In verses 2 through 4, we're going to see first that, that, that David says that God is my rock. God is my rock. Look at what he says in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. David is referring to God as his rock. And we see that all throughout the Psalms. That, that God is seen as a rock who, who would serve as a shelter, as a refuge, as a foundation. Think about what it means to have a refuge. If you lived in a desert region then you understood the importance of a large rock for shade. From the heat of the sun, you could gain shelter. You could survive in the shelter of a rock. You were guarded from the heat of the sun by day, and the rain and the cold and the wind by night. David has spent so many days hiding out in caves, depending on a rock. As a shepherd boy, he says that God has been his ultimate shelter. He says, God is my refuge. But, it, but he goes on and he says, not only is he just my shelter, he's also my refuge in the sense that God has provided for him. He's been his protection. He has sustained him. Think back for just a moment. Over the course of your life, how God has been a shelter for you. How he has been a refuge for you. How he has provided for you. How he has sustained you. Finally, he saw God as a rock who had been his foundation. Think about that for a moment. Who has been a firm and steady foundation. I think, I think we take this for granted if we're followers of Jesus. And the longer that we know Jesus, the more we take this for granted. How 
the Spirit at work in us provides a strong and a steady foundation. And we give ourselves way too much credit when it's really the Spirit who is prompting us and leading us and guiding us. And it's God's providence that goes before us. When you spend time with someone who does not know God, and when you begin to see their life unfold, not for a moment, not for a year, not even for a season, but when you lay their life before you, you begin to see the tragedy of someone who lives without God as a foundation. God is our foundation. I don't, I don't know that there's any illustration that's more meaningful to me than to remember uh, going deep sea fishing. About 20 years ago, we started going to the beach every summer with my wife's family. And that first year, my father-in-law, we were getting to know each other. And so he thought it would be fun if we had an experience together. And we would go, you know, out on the Gulf Coast and we'd go deep sea fishing. And I thought that sounded great too. And I knew that occasionally I might get a little seasick. So I took some Dramamine. I thought it'd be great. It wasn't clear and it, it wasn't big waves. I can kind of do both of those. It was somewhere in between. It was choppy. And I'll never forget that day. When we showed up, there was this guy. This was like 20 years ago. But there was this guy there. And it was clear he had. I don't know why this is important to the story. But it is. He, he had um, clearly not gone to sleep the night before. And he had clearly not stopped partying from the night before. But he had one of those big VHS uh, camcorders that looked like. You know, a TV reporter, like it took the full VHS tape. And he was plastered from the beginning, and it just got worse as we went throughout the fishing trip. And I'll remember as we were coming back into shore, about half that we'd been out about half the day, um, and about half of the folks on, on the boat had gotten sick. And we're coming back into shore, and that guy's like walking on deck, tripping over people's um, fishing lines and falling all over. Almost lost his camera overboard, which half of us were kind of hoping for. And he's the only one who's having fun at this point. <clears throat> and we're getting close to the dock, and I hear him say, Now when we all get back to the dock, we're going to stay on the boat, and I'm going to get off on the dock, and I'm going I'm to get one final picture of everybody. And I remember thinking... I may dive off this boat and swim to the dock, but I am not staying on this boat. I didn't stick around for his picture. I jumped off that dock, and I have never been so thankful to have a steady foundation under me. God is that foundation for us as believers. He is a steady foundation for our lives and for our souls. That's what... David is drawing us into, but he says over ten times, He is my foundation. He is my refuge. He is my shelter. God is the stabilizer in our lives. Without Him, our lives spin out of control. Colossians 1.17 says, He is the one who, it's in Him that He holds all things together. And He is the head of the body. His church. My rock, my refuge, my protection. To say that, David had to have a personal relationship with God. And each of us have to come to a place. We have to come to God as a sinner. Owning and feeling our unworthiness and casting ourselves on His grace. We have to come to Jesus. Have you made that decision in your life? Have you made the decision to say, Jesus is my rock? 
I want to encourage you, if you haven't, that you would come to Jesus and that you would, in your unworthiness, that you would surrender to Him and that you would say, God, it's only by Your grace that my life is stabilized. It's only by Your grace that I am forgiven and that I'm made clean. Listen, Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you. We don't talk about this every week, and we don't have a, a baptistry um, in this building, but we do have uh, a big tub, and we can fill it up at any time. And I just want to say it's super important, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you would follow Jesus in believer's baptism. That you would say, I don't care who knows. In fact, I want my friends and my family to know that I am a follower of Jesus. That I'm being sent out by Him to be on mission. And if you are a follower of Jesus, are you following Him? Are you living in a personal relationship with Him? We personally at Mercy Hill Church don't believe you can do that apart from community. We don't think that you can just show up on a Sunday, look at the back of someone's neck in front of you, sit in rows, listen to a message, and really grow in the likeness of Jesus. We don't think that's enough. And Jesus didn't think that was enough either. That's why he painstakingly spent three and a half years walking with 12 numbskulls who were called disciples. And at the end of those three and a half years, some of them still didn't believe. And he said that I'm calling you to go into the world and to make disciples. It would seem that there was a relational component to what he called us to do that was greater than sitting in rows. And so we have said, we're going to open up our homes. We're going to invite you to come into missional communities. We're going to share a meal together every week. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to be on mission. And then you guys know we have coffee groups that are even smaller groups than that. Threes and fours, guys and gals, where we're doing the community Bible reading journal together. We're encouraging you to read a chapter of the Old Testament, read a chapter of the New Testament every day. We've got the app, we've got the journals in the back. We want to be in God's Word together. Why? Because we know we can't grow alone. We need community. David is saying, it's my God. He has a personal walk with the Lord. But not only does David just say that God is faithful in the sense that He is my rock. Not only is God a rock, but God is not hard of hearing. David reminds us that God is not hard of hearing. Look at verses 5 through 7 as he reflects on his life. <coughs> For the wages of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of shield entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry came to his ear. Just because we're experiencing trouble doesn't mean that God does not hear our cry. Some of you need to hear that. David experienced trouble throughout almost all of his life. Some of his trouble was consequences of his own sin. Others were caused by the fact that he was a man after God's own heart. And what's important to remember is that God never stopped listening. God never stopped listening to David when David cried out for help. And God never stops listening when his children cry out for help. In fact, David wants us to realize this truth. And he wants us to realize this truth so strongly 
Then he spends the next dozen verses singing of God's continual rescue over and over again. Listen to how Dale Ralph Davies describes this next section of of David's song. He said, David doesn't merely want to tell you a fact about Yahweh. He wants you to see Yahweh in all his saving fury. He doesn't intend merely to inform you about what God has done. He wants you to see the God who did it. In all his phosphorescent splendor. He wants you to see. Now just let me let David unpack it for you. Look at verses 8 through 10. You're going to see this image of God descending on the Mount of Sinai. And and giving the law. Listen to verse 8. Then the earth reeled and rocked. Now remember the context is. David is saying, you're my rock, God. You're my foundation. You're my shelter. You're my refuge. And then he's saying, and then I was in in distress. I was in desperate situations. And when I cried out to the Lord, this is the Lord's response. And he starts to remember Mount Sinai. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of heaven trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. David imagines the Lord coming to him to establish his covenant like he did at Mount Sinai. Like he did in bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, look at verses, well, verse 11. I love this. He says, he rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. Like, not only does God not hard of hearing, but he's not slow either. But look at verses 12 through 15. Now David's going to give us an image of God, uh, his intervention to give victory to Israel in conquering the promised land. He's remembering uh, that time in which God intervened on Joshua's behalf. Look at verse 12. He made darkness around him his canopy, thick clouds a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. And the Most High uttered His voice. And He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. David is remembering God's work throughout the story of Israel as if He were there. As if God were coming to His rescue because David believes that God was. Listen at verses 18 through 20 as David echoes Moses' song of deliverance From Deuteronomy 32. Verse 18 he says. He rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. You rescued me. David is looking at the history of Israel. And he is seeing that the same God who's been working to build his kingdom throughout all of history, that same God has been coming to his aid to rescue him in a dramatic fashion. I don't think we really believe that the God of Mount Sinai is still sitting on his throne in heaven. We don't trust that the God who intervened on Joshua's behalf is still at work today. We don't believe that God can part seas 
and deliver us from our enemies and bring us to safe places. I don't think we really believe that oftentimes. Like this is such a, a, a small analogy to illustrate that, but he does, like he really does look around you for just a minute. Just look around you. I mean it, look around you. God parted our real estate seas. We prayed for eight years for God to give us a place where we could be His people. Rooted in the community that He had called us to, to display His name and His glory to whatever parts of Memphis He sends us to. And to have a heart for the nations. And listen, you may kind of laugh about that and say, say, yeah, maybe. No, God did this. If you know the relationship that I have with Carl, the owner, and that we have with Carl, it makes no sense. We pay $4,000 a month to inhabit this space and have the downstairs space throughout the week. And he takes care of the rest. We don't pay for the heating and cooling. We're not going to pay for the roof that's going to be put on it this spring. We're not going to pay for the air conditioning that's going to be put on it this sp- in it this spring. Like none of that stuff we have to worry about. I stalked Carl for about six months. <clears throat> and he knew it. <clears throat> and he was very gracious just to talk with me. And I'll never forget the first time that I talked with him. He, he locked those front doors after I'd spent an hour and a half with him. He'd shown me around and he said... I just kind of consider myself to be a caretaker of this space. Who does that? Who spent, he said, I just like to come in here and drink my coffee some mornings. Who does that? Who spends half a million dollars on a cup of coffee? That doesn't make any sense to me outside of God's providence. That God was at work going before us. And that God is gracious to us. And this is so small. This is so small. Looking at the way in which God intervenes. I mean, this is rocks. And this is glass. And this is a physical building that will one day, it will not exist. It's been here for a hundred years. Probably won't be here for another hundred. Let's be honest. But the work that God has done in our lives. In saving us. In calling us to himself. In forming a family. Even a physical family and a spiritual family. God is at work around us. There's so many seas that God parts in our lives. Hundreds of times in which he gives us protection. In which he gives us aid. I wonder how we would pray. And how we would participate in his mission with Jesus. If we truly believe that God is not hard of hearing. I think we think of God oftentimes like we think of a dad who's kicked back in his lazy boy recliner with, not even with a newspaper anymore, but with a phone in front of his face and the TV on, and he's just kind of busy, and we're just a distraction to him. And like prayer is our opportunity to try to get his attention, when in reality, God is on his knee, 
And he desires to hear our prayers so desperately that he says when you don't have the passion to pray that Jesus is intervening on our behalf at the Father's right hand and that the Spirit is praying prayers for us on our behalf because we don't know what to pray and how to pray and we don't have the passion to pray because we don't really believe that Jesus hears us, that God desires to hear our prayers. What prayers would we pray for our own families, for those who are lost, who are part of like our biological families? What prayers would we pray for our neighbors? What prayers would we pray for those men and women and children that we have now given up on? If the Holy Spirit really awakened our hearts to the fact that God is still a God who parts the sea. That God is still a God who bows the heaven and comes down. That He is a rescuer. How prideful of us to think that God would save us, but that He wouldn't save others. How prideful of us to think that we could save ourselves, but that there would be someone who would be too far from God. Oh, that we might be a people who would believe that God desires to rend the heavens and come down, even today. In Memphis, Tennessee in 2020. Finally, David teaches us, maybe most importantly, and maybe if we don't start here, we never get anywhere else that God delights in us. And this is the one that I struggle to believe the most. Listen to what David says in verses 20 through 29. And I love this because this, these verses are a little bit confusing at first. But I think in their confusion, they actually help us. Look at verse 20. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. This is at the end of David's life. All the bumps along the way. All the crashes, all the confusion, all the mess ups. How could David say, he delighted in me? Listen to how he goes on. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord, and I've not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. At the first reading of that, if you have even been awake half of the time we've been going throughout David's life, you got some real questions when he says... In verse uh, 22 and 23, I've kept the ways of the Lord. From his statutes, I did not turn aside. I mean, my first theological response to that is, Like, David, did you forget about Bathsheba? Like, did you forget about Uriah? Did you forget about all the wives? Like, did you forget about turning away from the Lord and going to the Philistines? Like, how can David say that God delights in him? How could he say that? 
I think when David, here's a key. I think it's so important that we would understand this. When David speaks of his righteousness, he's not pointing to sinless perfection. He's pointing to his life's direction. He's pointing to the direction of his life. He points out that God delighted in him. And that's where it begins. Remember, it wasn't David who volunteered for God's service. But the Lord who sent Samuel to choose and anoint David as a man after God's own heart. It wasn't David's choosing. This means that David's heart was devoted devoted to God, but even more that God's heart had first set itself on David. Moses, in the same way, explained God's covenant love for Israel. In terms of sovereign election. In Deuteronomy 7. Moses would say. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people. For his treasured possession. Not because you are more in number. Than any other people. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath. That he swore to your fathers. And that is the story. Of the Bible. We know we are delighted in. Because God has chosen us. By trusting in Jesus, we can know that we enjoy the gift of salvation and relationship with God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of God's good choosing and Jesus' good work. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And that's the result that David is describing here. A life that is committed to Jesus produces holiness. It's marked by humility. And it walks in the direction of righteousness. David isn't claiming sinless perfection. But he is claiming a wholehearted commitment to God. David says, hey, he's in essence saying, yes, I've made my mistakes But when you look at my life, the trajectory of my life has been a long obedience in the same direction after God's heart. I wonder what good deeds would mark our lives if we truly believe that God delights in us. None of us completely believe that. I mean, we grow up in a system that perpetuates the idea of reward. Right? I mean, there's always a reason behind our actions that propel us forward. Most of the time, that reason is not because we're loved, but instead it's oftentimes in order to attempt to earn love. Our entire lives are built on that system. I think our personalities are largely formed around the idea of how do I earn love. And we're growing up in a family system in which we are looking to survive and to find our place. And when we see the way in which we are earning love and the way in which we are rewarded, we begin to bend to that system we're always looking how do I find my place how do I survive in this life and that creates a problem for us because it runs contrary to the gospel listen to this statement I'm going to wrap up listen to this statement Clifton Roth makes he says I easily I'm going to read this really slow I easily forget That my ability to love others is in direct correlation to my capacity to experience God's love for me. 
Let me stop right there for just a second. You grew up in a family system in which you were rewarded. If you were a good helper, then you became a helper. And now, throughout your adult life, you're a helper. You're, you, that's how you learned that you earn love and how you are rewarded. And so, you're a good little helper. There's a problem with that. That's just one example. He says, I easily forget that my ability to love others is in direct correlation to my capacity to experience God's love for me. See, God's love is different. We don't earn God's love. We were chosen. I cannot vulnerably give love if I am not vulnerably receiving love. 1 John 4 tells us that. It says we love because he first loved us. It seems that my lack of receptivity to God's love is at the core of my depravity. My sin is born out of my mistrust. He doesn't love you, the evil one says. You can't trust that his love alone will be enough. So, I do a lot of really amazing and impressive deeds. Most of which look like love. In my efforts to prove my love worthiness. And when I get tired of managing my love worthiness, well, I can do some pretty corrupt and shameful deeds too. This then just reinforces my unloveliness and sends me right back into my managing again. What a vicious and exhausting cycle. What he is saying is that God has loved us with an everlasting love and he chose us not because of anything that we did and we have no system in our worlds to compute that. In our worlds, we are constantly trying to earn love. What would it be like if we actually began to believe that God's love has been poured into our hearts and that God is for us I mean, what's the cure to really believing that God loves us and that he likes us? Well, thanks be to God that it's not on us. Thanks be to God for his spirit in me who often whispers the words of John, this is real love. Not that you love God, but that he loved you. The spirit and presence of Christ in me helps quiet down and it helps me to sit down and receive his love loving another is always preceded by being loved by another David passionately declares Jesus love for us and he points us to the greatest rescue that would come to us it's Jesus on the cross Because it's on the cross that Jesus declares most passionately, you are my child. I have rescued you and I've paid the highest price for the gift of your freedom. What would it look like to believe that God delights in you and is for you? How would your life change if you really believed and received His love? How would you have boldness and passion to share his love with others? Listen, it's one of the reasons why we fight for adoption so strongly in this community. 
Not because we believe so strongly in physical adoption. But we do. But we fight so strongly for adoption. Because we've come to realize and to see. That the gospel says that we have been adopted. That God has chosen us. When we were in our sin. And when we were unworthy. And when we had nothing that would cause him to come to us. God has rescued us and he has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has loved us. And God has done that all because of Jesus. What would it be like in our lives if we truly believe that? We've come to a time in our service where we're going to continue to worship, but we're going to worship through communion. And as we do that, I want to invite you, as you come forward, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a child of God, you're invited to come and tear the bread that reminds you of his body broken for you. As you dip it in the juice, you're going to be reminded of his blood that's been shed for you. But as you come to this time in which we're reminded that we have intimacy with God, listen, the service isn't over, okay? The sermon isn't over. As you come to this moment in time, I want you to consider Jesus is a gift to us. He's a gift that God has given us that declares His love for us. And as we come and we receive this gift, we're reminded that Jesus is with us. That His presence is in us. And that God loves us. Let me ask you this. As you come today to to, to worship, as you come to take communion, consider this, where do you most need to receive God's love in your life? What part or aspect of your life seems to be most unlovable? Where do you continue to try to earn God's love and His favor? Where do you most need to receive God's love in your life? Now do something. There's going to be people who are serving communion. And as you take communion, you're going to tear a piece of the bread. And you're going to dip it in the juice. And that could be just like every other day. But what would it be like if you imagined as you came forward, that person as they say, Christ's body broken for you. As they say, Christ's blood poured out for you. What would it be like if in that moment you imagined actually Christ giving you of himself. And you came to be reminded... This is the love God has for me. That he would give me his son. Even Jesus. Let's pray.